0: Welcome back to Unfuck the Poor, Chapter 12, Milton Friedman is an Asshole, Part 2. To refresh your memories, we were about to discuss a toxic externality of modern business, plastics. But before we do that, let's talk about externalities in a bit more detail. Again, an externality is a cost or benefit caused by a corporation that it does not pay for or receive compensation for. Technically, externalities can be either positive or negative, though if we're being honest, it's the 21st century and corporations are really, really good at making money. So, do you think there are any externalities that corporations are aware of that they don't benefit from? Positive externalities tend toward underconsumption. A corporation that does not control its positive externalities imperils itself, while offloading negative externalities is a net benefit. All that said, let's get back to plastics. Unfuck the Poor, Chapter 12. Milton Friedman is an Asshole, Part 2. Efforts by petroleum companies to start up municipal plastic recycling plants was a response to the public's growing concern about waste plastic. The recycling plants were never meant to be a permanent or even workable solution. Industry executives knew that plastic degrades when recycled, giving it two to three cycles of use at most. Sorting plastic was, and remains, Expensive. The recycling programs were meant to give the appearance of good intentions. By providing giant green and blue bins in which to throw their plastic, the public believed that their recycled plastic wouldn't end up in landfills. Some of it didn't. About 10% of all plastic ever has been recycled, while some of it is incinerated, which produces toxic chemicals such as dioxin, a persistent organic pollutant that does not readily break down and causes cancer, reproductive, developmental, and immune system complications. In 2017, China stopped accepting U.S. waste plastic. Apparently, we don't clean it very well, and apparently they were tired of absorbing our externalities as well. And keeping it here in the U.S. would have undermined the public image of a functioning recycling program. In 2018, over 160 million cubic feet of plastic were shipped from the United States to developing countries like Bangladesh, Laos, Ethiopia, Cambodia, Ghana, Kenya, and Senegal. Trash sorters in Vietnam can make $6 a day picking through your poorly cleaned and not sorted plastic shit, while scrap pickers in Turkey can make up to $8 a day. No one sorting through America's imported trash asked for the opportunity to pick garbage. Most countries have enough of their own plastic that they can't keep up with domestic recycling either, and while Americans equally didn't ask for 90% of our lives to include petroleum-based products and forever trash, We do now share in the collective offshoring of market externalities. It is convenient for us to throw something away and imagine we have done our part in protecting the environment, but the reality is quite grim. That we have been sold our complicity in the production of mass quantities of trash is mere marketing. The key tactic of blaming individuals, as one American can executive insisted, packages don't litter people do, obfuscated the real causes of mounting waste. Keep America Beautiful paved the way in sowing confusion about the environmental impacts of mass production and consumption, today a favorite tool of the corporate greenwashing world. If the public believes that industry is responsibly handling natural resources, if they think production under a free market is sustainable, and if average consumers accept that they are to blame when waste gets out of control, an Orwellian flipping of the script, then laws will not be enacted, governments won't intervene, and production can continue on industry's terms. End quote. Indeed, the influences on consumer behavior, marketing, public relations, advertising, are conveniently left out of economist graphs and models because, perhaps as Friedman sees it, a market may well be convoluted with purveyors of real information, misinformation, and disinformation, but the market of information has no responsibility to the consumer. The consumer must use all available resources to determine, say, if a nonprofit organization's marketing campaign, such as Keep America Beautiful, is run by an independent collective of concerned citizens or, if in reality, it was the brainchild of the packaging industry. The resulting guilt we feel when we are wasteful is, in this instance, the successful externalization of public pressure. If the public consents to blame itself, it will leave the corporation alone. I will impart this last bit of business wisdom unto you. Corporations, all businesses, are fussy and static. It may sound ridiculous, but My special business skills have taught me how to calculate the efficiency of construction workers down to the time it takes to load a nail gun and the exact number of nails it should take to build a house. It has also taught me to calculate the linear feet of steel a union welder can complete in an hour, all the way to how to calculate the volume of air that you can expect a load of soil to absorb once you scoop it out of the ground and place it in the back of a dump truck. Businesses run on this sort of information day in and day out. It's not particularly useful while I'm writing a book at home, but every day, very dedicated individuals go to work and look at standardized estimating templates and calculate all these things for thousands of construction projects around the world. Point is, businesses are efficient because they don't have to fundamentally change. They only have to maximize value. Should a new technology arise that would allow them to fundamentally change, there will be a team of people with Excel spreadsheets, figuring out transition and implementation costs and learning curves. Any outside pressure that would disrupt the steady flow of numbers that predict a company's efficiency and profitability is an unwelcome pressure. It is an externality to be avoided. No company can shift to market demands instantaneously. There has to be board votes and shareholder consensus. There has to be some driver of change. The corporation is no driver of change. The market, even less responsible than the corporation, is the driving force behind change. To sum up, one, every contract is negotiable, two, the market's lifeblood is cash flow, and three, businesses, while streamlined, cannot navigate abrupt changes in the status quo. The dream of humble revolutionaries involves change from within, while more passionate revolutionaries may envision violent upheaval. Opting out of the contract to which we never agreed is the common thread for both. The direction we may take varies wildly depending on our worldviews, not how others may interpret them, but how they fit into our specific time and place. Opting out of the market is nearly impossible to do, which is counter to Friedman's belief in the individual's ability to exit the market, that a household can provide all for itself on the plot of land it owns. It's naive to think that in the poorest parts of the United States, such an option is a simple one-to-one exchange. Systemic issues have become such positive feedback loops that they breed new, mutated issues that are even harder to address. The lack of access to affordable nutritious foods, vegetables, whole grains, fruits, and nuts in urban neighborhoods, suburbs, and rural areas has created what sociologists call food deserts, where the only available options are heavily processed foods or paying a premium for raw goods. The efficiency of the market tells us food deserts should not exist. Processed foods require expensive industrial equipment and intensive product handling that create added value to raw goods. Added value is the input of extra labor and materials into a raw product that increases its value and price to consumers. Raw fruits and vegetables are perhaps the least labor-intensive products to place in a grocery. After picking, sorting, and washing, they are packaged and shipped in a refrigerated truck. That we utilize low-wage seasonal workers for many agricultural harvesting operations indicates that something is deeply, fundamentally flawed in the process of providing raw sustenance to millions of people in the U.S. alone. In other cases, privatization of public utilities like water treatment and wastewater collection ensures that, no matter what, you will pay a corporation to access clean, potable water. As of 2020, 13% of Americans receive water services from private utility providers, and research has shown that private services are less bound to standards of resource management and equity, meaning fewer conservation efforts and graywater reuse policies, as well as a higher likelihood for water shutoff where community equity is concerned. But nearly impossible is not insurmountable. As I mentioned before, it is frustrating to get to the end of a book armed with knowledge and interest and then having no idea what to do with it other than the vague notion of direct action. I will provide some examples as answers, but know that your creativity is what drives everything. It isn't naive to think that structures can change, but naivety is the barrier to entry. Realistic expectations are required. Not everyone gets along, even if they have the same beliefs. Sometimes things just don't work out. Sometimes people get cold feet. Sometimes people get disinterested. And sometimes people simply can't be bothered to try or care. But you can be bothered to try, and you can find people who share in the willingness to try. Direct action, the thing you can do now with the people you know and the resources you have, starts with creativity. Brainstorming with friends to solve a problem? Local, regional, national, international requires identifying a problem and creating a plan of action. If you get no further than this step, you will at least understand the problem and have an idea of what a solution looks like, and you can support others who organize around the same issue. If your plan is served by awareness, then informing those in the affected community is one of your top priorities. Knock on doors, connect with other groups and ask for support, use social media to your advantage to connect directly. The thing you do, the action itself, is anything planting a community garden in an abandoned city lot, waterway cleanups, investigative public journalism, protesting, cutting off cash flow through boycotts, public education, literally anything else you can think of doing can be effective if you plan your action and act your plan. While I would never directly advocate breaking the law, I would absolutely assert that some laws have no justification and that in certain instances, sabotage and the material damage inflicted by sabotage are effective and justifiable forms of dissent. In July of 2019, Kentucky coal miners in Harlan County began a months-long blockade of the railroad tracks, private property, serving Black Jewel mining operations after Black Jewel filed for bankruptcy and left over a 1,000 workers without work and pay for a month. No more than 100 miners occupied the tracks at any point in time, but the efforts garnered support from Kentucky Attorney General Andy Bashir. After two months of blocking trains hauling coal, Black Jewel settled with the workers for $5.1 million in back pay. During the strike, locals in support of the blockade assisted by bringing food, water, and bodies to occupy the tracks. The Harlan County blockade utilized a network structure called the Affinity Group, which is really just a group of people that like each other. Do you have friends? If so, you have an affinity group. If you're a member of a Fortnite clan, you have an affinity group. Affinity groups don't require any hierarchy or decision-making process. A group of individuals with mutual trust and shared goals will act in the interest of the group to achieve that goal. If you hated group projects in school because you had to work with people who weren't your friends, then you are well aware of the opposite of an affinity group, which is also the basic format of any job you've ever had where you don't pick your coworkers. It's death. But with affinity groups, the lack of hierarchy leads to free association, allowing members to split time between groups or for individuals to reassess their goals and contribute to other groups. With free association, there is the issue of trust, and affinity groups aren't parties. They serve a purpose. Expanding your group to include more participants is great. Power in numbers means higher efficacy, efficiency, and visibility. But plans and goals can be ruined by bad actors, whether intentional or not. The opposite is true for those seeking to join existing groups. Be upfront about your interests, your time commitments, and your willingness to do a thing. If protesting is not your thing, perhaps offering a place to stay for traveling protesters is where you fit in. If trespassing or material damage is not your thing, and maybe you organize bail, communication, or support. Material damage, it should be noted, is not destruction or vandalism for fun. But in the case of Harlan County miners, the protests involved both trespassing and material damages. Material is something worth value and damage is loss. Blocking the railroad tracks caused material damage by preventing a load of coal being transported and sold. This exploits all three flaws of the modern corporation. One, Every contract is negotiable. In this instance, the miners agreed to work for pay. They did not agree to loss of wages in the event of financial failure. Two, cash flow is life. Blocking the transport of goods from a producer directly impacts the revenue of a struggling company. They were in the process of bankruptcy, meaning it faces heavy consequences for not paying debtors, which would be, in this case, seizure of assets. And three, corporations cannot shift on a dime. Black Jewel could not suddenly shift to more profitable production or find an alternate way to transport coal. They had to pay their way out of a losing situation. Material damages can be recovered through lawsuits, for which a corporation must calculate the benefits of pursuing losses compared to the loss itself, as well as harm to public image, and whether the other party also has a right to claim material damages, or, you know, the loss of work and not being paid. The benefit of organizational structures is their predictability. Without a central leader, everyone can contribute equally to a stated goal or purpose, but without order, nothing can be accomplished." In small groups, unanimous consensus may be appropriate, while large groups or a combination of groups may benefit from formal majority voting. Facilitators can be selected for large groups, the role can be temporary for one event or one meeting, or they can be rotating a different facilitator every time. But the goal is to coordinate and not necessarily to lead or delegate. For the more adventurous, considerations such as safety, secrecy, and privacy become as important as the overall goal of whatever you're trying to accomplish. Everything that leaves a trace is a security risk, including your personal history. IP addresses, cell phones, GPS signals, credit, debit card use, surveillance cameras, aliases, identification, fingerprints, and past involvement in any activity can lead anyone, anyone, not just the generic authorities, back to you and your group. In some cases, secrecy and security doesn't serve much purpose. The Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter, and #MeToo changed public consciousness because they were not anonymous social issues have real power when humanity is on display. However, some movements, because they affect every citizen, benefit from anonymity. Those protesting or out in front could be anyone. They could be any citizen standing up for what is right. We return to the World Bank's imposition of neoliberal order. In this context, the Bolivian Water War. Like most of Central and South America opened up for international trade and the influx of foreign direct investment. Bolivia had agreed to a number of economic reforms guided by the World Bank and International Development Bank, a consequence of which was the privatization of water, including rainwater. Dectil, an American engineering, construction, and management firm owned the majority shares of Aguas del Tunari, which received the privatized contract in 1999. The result of privatizing water? For the poorest Bolivians, water prices rose 300 percent, For others, their autonomous water and irrigation systems were expropriated du jour, meaning those who had been self-reliant on water were legally required to become customers of Bechtel. Direct action by the Coalition for the Defense of Water and Life involved mass protests and demonstrations in the city of Cochabamba, which was met with police retaliation. At the end of four months of increasingly violent demonstrations, 175 demonstrators had been injured and 17-year-old Victor Hugo Daza had been killed, shot in the face by Bolivian Army Captain Robinson Iriarte de la Fuente, and Bechtel Aguas withdrew from their contract and the Municipal Water Service, Semapa took over. Unique in the Cochabamba protests is the collective of activist groups that joined in for their own purposes. Teachers and police demanded raises. Coca farmers demanded they not be forced to eradicate their fields in favor of, ah, fuck, cotton, pineapples, and bananas. What the fuck is it with bananas? Per my previous statement, solutions are messy. But after the revolution, there were problems. The resulting situation with a municipally controlled water supply is the lack of resources to achieve 24-7 service for 100% of customers, an issue that would have been the case no matter what considering Cochabamba's aging and limited infrastructure. Proponents of privatization would point out that in exchange for the rights to access water, Bolivians have been left without the ability to access it, and as a result of the canceled contract and social unrest, lenders are wary of providing loans for upgrades. You might wonder if the outcome was worth the effort, but this is the wrong question. The correct question, or at least the logical linear question, meaning looking forward not back, is what comes next. Direct action has oppositional limits, in other words, the end of one campaign or effort gives rise to another, and that one reveals more still. In the case of remunicipalization of public utilities, the public to which the utility rights are entrusted becomes its own set of concerns. Like most crazy things, the U.S. is second in the world for water remunicipalization, with most water services having been predominantly private up until the 20th century. For fans of Karl Marx, this reinforces the idea that socialism is the post-capitalist tendency. However, We can sidestep this theory and say that, in the way barter and currency go hand in hand, it is equally likely that state charters of incorporation specifically for the establishment of private, expirable utility contracts are efficient means of implementing a public service. This certainly was the relationship between the state and the corporation prior to the 20th century. The original function of the corporation was specifically to serve the public. Railroad companies having originally been public charters until the 1886 case Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad Company, which I previously mentioned. But for Bolivians, the story is obviously different. The exchange of water rights from a public utility to a private commodity and back to a public utility puts the fundamental right to access back in the hands of Bolivians, rather than being monopolized by an international corporation. The right for Bolivians to choose how to move forward is theirs to make, But that right is theirs alone in principle, certainly it is not even in the realm of relevancy to the World Bank. In the Peruvian Amazon, the indigenous Cerro Murillo community blocked the passage of oil and fuel ships on the Marañón River following a series of oil spills in 2016. In Peru, tactics ranged from the rather banal blockade of the river using barges to the more extreme hostage-taking in order to get the attention of the central government. In March 2016, they took eight government officials hostage. In October 2016, their river blockade detained over 200 international tourists and others along the river in Loreto. and in January 2019, residents from Chapas took 24 members of a government communications team hostage. The blockades work for Peruvians the same as they worked for Harlan County miners. The holdup of transport boats cut the 10,000 barrel a day oil production in Laredo. And here's a noteworthy distinction. When Harlan County miners block a presumably occupied train, no one aboard the train is considered a hostage. I'll just leave that there. Understandably, direct action can sound daunting. It is, by name, a call to do something, and deep dives into some of the more subversive texts available to direct action proponents like Earth First Direct Action Manual, Eco Defense: A Field Guide and Recipes for Disaster and Anarchist Cookbook can provide much more in-depth and practical guides for those wanting to learn more. But direct action does not necessarily equate to violent tactics, though it is intrinsically subversive. In that context, one could argue that all subversive action is direct, and by its subversive nature it therefore evades the confines of traditional marketplaces. If the market guides us with the force of an invisible hand, subversion of that force requires visible resistance. The Tanda is the perfect example of subversive finance. It is a private, informal loan club. And they are definitively subversive affinity groups. They are also positively reinforcing structures. By maintaining one through completion, it proves itself and encourages further activity. So what the fuck is a Tanda? You and your affinity group or friends get together and talk about your bills. Some of you are behind on rent, utilities, there's maybe a medical bill, taxes, credit card. Some want to just save money to buy a thing and others are relatively comfortable, but they like to help out. Once a week, once every other week, once a month, or once every 42 days or whatever timetable you choose, each of you makes a deposit of a fixed amount, and whoever is on the rotation receives the lump sum. A Tanda is a zero-interest loan that prioritizes payout in terms of highest to lowest need, or it randomizes the payout. For participants with less need, the Tanda serves as a short-term savings account with no upfront payment on the first round for the first recipient, with each subsequent round requiring no deposit for the recipient that round. After a complete rotation, the total pot can be increased. Members can opt out or more can join. Like the principles of direct action itself, the system relies on trust. Being able to hold each other accountable for monthly payments ensures that the system remains effective for all. A TANDA can be arranged with any structure of payment frequencies, increases, or even long-term alternative pots. There is no set structure for how one works, and the underlying rule is that the rotation must either prioritize those in need or, in the case of equal need, random distribution like a raffle. In the spreadsheet that I provide, you can find it at askaleftist.com, the total pot of $1,000 is representative of the total contribution of all parties per month, while the $900 payout is the real value. With the TANDA model, numerous goals are easier to achieve aside from meeting individual or family expenses. TANDAs can be used to pool assets for a large shared expense such as housing, wholesale food purchases, or even as a model for collective work enterprises. That's the original form of incorporation. As a bonus, their negative externality is decreased demand for payday loans and no capital loss from interest payments. It is not a far step from a tanda to -to peer-to-peer processes that have become omnipresent in modern culture, though we probably don't think about them as such. I mentioned earlier peer-to-peer file sharing and my reminiscences of the early internet, which was itself a precursor to the alternative market system emerging today. Consider For example, YouTube's use of algorithms to direct your eyeballs to a specific rabbit hole of linked videos. It is an algorithm that, based on what you're watching, predicts what you would like to watch next from another source. That is not a peer-to-peer process, but the specific videos that show up, loosely related by content, are part of that process. Creators across platforms benefit from exposure to other creators, essentially collectivizing what we would otherwise call market research. For a website like YouTube, the barrier to access is low – basically all you need is an email address and something to record video – while the access to content is high you can determine what videos others would like to see based on how you respond to certain videos and how popular similar videos are. The need for a centralized video production, a television or movie studio, to vet talent, create content, and measure markets is undercut by the direct peer connections viewers and makers have, as well as the additional connections between viewers in the comments and the creators in video collaborations. At no point does any authority determine that a video should be made for a certain audience at a certain time. That authority is left to the creator. Of course, one of the more sickening aspects of Algorithm's automating viewing experience is the inevitable path toward right-wing extremist content. Get your shit together, YouTube and Facebook! Lyft, Turo, and Airbnb do act as peer-to-peer marketplaces, but they do not necessarily count as, quote, processes that aim to increase the most widespread participation by equipotential participants, end quote. And that is from Michelle Bowens's 2005 article, The Political Economy of Peer Production. Open source software, decentralized currency, the GNU public license, and creative commons license promote use for the general public good, which is, obviously, the opposite of capitalism and meets balance's criteria for widest use by the most people. According to Balance, peer-to-peer processes constitute a revolutionary distribution of production, governance, and property, creation for the sake of use value to others, distribution of authority with no hierarchy, and peer property as opposed to public and private property. This is the basis of the Web 2.0, not an actual second internet, but the second iteration of the earlier internet. Remember I said my friends and I would print out hundreds of pages of joke emails in seventh grade? That would be the earliest iteration of Web 2.0, in which the efforts to produce and distribute such content through email chains were undertaken by people whose primary technical abilities were copy, paste, and send. Web 2.0 is the direct connection of creators without the traditional intermediary – publishers, broadcasters, and music producers, for example. Rather, sites like YouTube, SoundCloud, and Scribd serve as the infrastructure rather than mediator for the dissemination of content. Problems within big tech abound. Corporations that control and maintain the infrastructure of P2P networks are no different from monopolies of the past, whether oil, rail, or even software. Uh, See the Microsoft antitrust lawsuit. But our digital rights are no less negotiable. From right to repair to transparent algorithms to the dignity of warehouse workers in the online consumer supply chain we face a new era of corporate plunder. Besides stepping their glossy, egalitarian public images, we must be willing to view big tech as accountable and vulnerable as any other corporate sector. Without users and creators, their platforms are useless, and in those roles, we have great power. That we actively pursue and engage in P2P interaction and the distribution of knowledge without outside influence or promise of gain undermines the entire concept of the natural market economy. Our nature is one of neither reciprocity nor maxim utility. What implication does a free P2P economy, one that not only includes but could be defined as de facto open source cooperation, have on traditional economic theory? For one, it kills the fiction of Homo economicus, a creature so absurd economists themselves don't take it seriously. Homo sapiens is in fact a cooperative creature that relies on open communication, taking full advantage of the information unavailable to those within the Prisoner's Dilemma, and enjoys a mutually beneficial relationship with other flesh-and-blood humans. This is possibly the simplest conclusion to come to because it is also the easiest to observe. Ecologists have documented ad nauseum the interspecies cooperation within ecosystems from the natural rise and fall of predator-prey populations to the proliferation of flora. The economist may look at such relationships and see a framework of supply and demand, but a more careful examination would suggest no such thing. The advantages provided every living thing through evolutionary changes suggest a streamlined anti-capitalist structure. Established migration patterns without borders, the utilization of subsistence survival foraging and scatter hoarding for many animals denies the fiction of sustained satiation. While cycles of hibernation and dormancy exemplify the practical survival of species, through inactivity, a concept completely at odds with the focus of constant growth of capital structure because it is naturally unsustainable, not only in the sense of resource utilization but also in species fatigue. Natural systems rely on cycles of production and renewal. Natural competition is a matter of survival while market competition is a matter of exploitation. Once the needs of survival have been met, the following pursuit of accumulation requires excess production, a matter of resource exploitation with no practical benefit. How can we possibly transition from an economic system of inherent inequality to one of mutual cooperation? I think first, we have to reject the notion of economic systems in general. Capital economies are not naturally occurring phenomena, and the one we have found ourselves in has been grossly manipulated by the smallest fraction of our global population to work in their favor. This is not some flaw in the design, but the design itself. In the pursuit of self-interest, the corporate person has the right to unlimited accumulation with no accountability except to the shareholder, whose sole interest is the self. Selfish desires of one feed the selfish desires of the other. Above all, the mass financialization of the world has led to the mass everything of the world. Mass inequality, mass racism, mass black incarceration, mass poverty, mass unrest, mass discrimination. In considering the alternative to capitalism, the only possible outcome is its mass rejection. Rooted in true liberation, revolution seeks the autonomy of the self, the right to free association, the right to one's own productivity. The features of a revolutionized society, a revolutionized economy, put the freedom of self-sustaining peer groups above all else. We may imagine factories in an industrial era that no longer exist, but the truth is that whatever its form, labor persists. Whether in an office, on an assembly line, in a hermetically sealed control room where computer processors are made, on a construction site, in a hip, renovated industrial building with exposed brick and vegan catering where the only product is computer code, the commonality is that humans do creative industrious skilled and unskilled things. Poor living conditions put many humans in the position to be exploited for their willingness to do things when the trade-off between doing a thing and not doing a thing is life or death. Intense work schedules, the kind that produce the 100-hour work week for of all things, investment banking interns and loss of distinction between work life and real life in white-collar jobs is no less exploitative despite its promise of higher pay. It may well be true that the corporation has no responsibility but to make profit, but that doesn't justify its externalities. If a corporation cannot function without harmful externalities, its existence is unjustifiable. We are not obligated to absorb the externalities of a corporation simply because it provides something we would otherwise not have. Likewise, we are not obligated to the corporation in any way. We may be inundated by it, assaulted minute by minute by its relentless need to rent space in our consciousness, by its infinite solutions to our seemingly infinite problems, but the solution has never been the consumption of more stuff. The solution has never been to prop up the market, to bail out and subsidize its predatory and exploitative bastard children. The solution has always been resistance and subversion. Reject the corporation for what it embodies and pursue its alternatives at every chance. Block a logging road, record police brutality, shop local, trade, barter, repair, make your own booze, grow a garden, boycott en masse, ignore oppressive laws, use your influence if you have it and your privilege to deny the market its cash flow. Do something, do it with friends, and do it now. Our economic system only exists because it has successfully convinced us there are no alternatives or that alternatives inevitably fail. That pursuing change is childish, futile, or naive. Change is none of those things. No singular action or ideology solves every problem. That includes alternatives to the capital economy as well as capital economy itself. Arguably, the evolution of capital economies over the last two centuries provides tremendous real data and anecdotal evidence to show that our liberal and neoliberal economic pursuits have benefited few flesh-and-blood humans and have in the best of cases provided humans with the ability to retire from work. Meanwhile, for the majority, day-to-day subsistence is the reality, and in the worst of cases, It simply promotes death, whether through police violence, starvation, illness, or guns and bombs. I would love to tell you that a return to quasi-primitive self-sufficient living is the magic bullet. That is the same anti-technology future that Unabomber Ted Kaczynski advocated in Industrial Society and its Consequences. Kaczynski's manifesto is tainted with the pointless deaths and terrorism of his mail bombings, but there is little within the document itself with which one can disagree. Indeed, the predictions made at time of publication in 1995 have come true. The patenting of genetic data, the proliferation of surveillance measures, displacement of workers through automation and the exploitation of cheap labor, further consolidation and control of media and the restrictions of a free press as a result, rapid economic and technological acceleration. The enormous effort of transitioning away from ever-increasing technological capabilities is considered heavily yet concedes high levels of disregard for those who don't want to abandon technology. This manifested quite viscerally in Kaczynski's use of mail bombings and murder to get attention. While his philosophy is mostly sound, Kaczynski's reliance on death and terror is a bridge too far for those firmly rooted in nonviolence, though nonviolence itself is a negotiable stance. In case you think my mention of Kaczynski itself is a bridge too far, consider two observations that modern Democrats and Republicans would both agree with, though separately, obviously. Quote, The conservatives are fools. They whine about the decay of traditional values, yet they enthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. Apparently, it never occurs to them that you can't make rapid, drastic changes in the technology and the economy of a society without causing rapid changes in all other aspects of society as well, and that such rapid changes inevitably break down traditional values. That is, uh, you know, part one. Part two, quote, "...leftism is a totalitarian force. Wherever leftism is in a position of power, it tends to invade every private corner and force every thought into a leftist mold. In part, this is because of the quasi-religious character of leftism. Everything contrary to leftist beliefs represents sin." Either quote could be contributed to an editorial aside from Anna Kasparian, a leftist, or Alex Jones, a conservative, but they were written by a man who mailed pipe bombs to people. And now, let's talk about socialism and communism. For some, the glaring failures of state control of resources seem to be isolated quirks rather than inherent functions of consolidated ideological power from both internal and external factors. In the case of USSR grain shortages and famine, the US was particularly unhelpful with its grain embargoes in response to the USSR's invasion of Afghanistan, essentially willing to starve the Russian population by restricting food supplies in hopes of causing social unrest The U.S. instead caused more harm at home. The embargoes lowered grain prices domestically and farmers eventually boycotted the embargo through the farm strike movement, peaceably, it should be noted, by circling USDA headquarters in several states with their tractors. For the USSR, this proved to be a political advantage as they were able to supplement the lost supply with cheaper purchases from other markets, like Argentina, and showing the Soviet government that they did not need to rely on U.S. grain supplies, essentially gaining independence from the U.S. market. In Maoist China, the failure of government agriculture was aided at once by severe drought and flooding though the incompetence of Mao's government was a much larger factor. Close planting, deep plowing, and the eradication of sparrows and other birds that ate seeds resulted in stunted, underperforming crops, rocky soil with poor growth, and an influx of vermin and insects all helped cut grain production 30% in just two years. Mao's government had also poorly planned irrigation systems, which flooded fields in normal rains. The removal of farmers from government-owned lands, sending them to industrial sectors instead, further worsened the problem. Ultimately, the government kept food from its own people, and indeed, tens of millions of deaths occurred under Mao's government. Indian economist Amartya Sen summarizes the effect of anti-socialist authoritarian rule in his book, Development as Freedom, quote, Hard to imagine that anything like this could have happened in a country that goes to the polls regularly and that has an independent press. During that terrible calamity, the government faced no pressure from newspapers, which were controlled, and none from opposition parties, which were absent, End quote. I cannot wholesale endorse the conversion of private property to state property. Without capitalism, the state itself becomes the problem, in much the same way that I can't wholesale endorse the conversion of individual autonomy to mandated collectivism. Voluntary collectivism and free association are what humans do best. Creative pursuits satisfy individual and group needs, and while the use of technology has the ability to proliferate a P2P anti-economy, It faces serious challenges from the influences of commodification and surveillance, or the enclosure and policing of the digital commons. Creativity in this context is humanitarian, not artistic. The need and desire to create, whether through craftsmanship, labor, research, or really any verb that humans do, is the foundation of human nature and creativity. Where property cannot be owned in any real way by flesh and blood humans or corporations, it can neither be owned by the state. Property can be tended and protected only as long as a lifetime, after which all perceived rights are lost. Freedom to join the capital economy on equal terms is the most visible goal of leftist pursuits, but it presupposes the justification of such a system outright. Real individual freedom is the power to reject the notion of capital and to live not in isolation but in open groups, as active or inactive as one chooses. So long as we have a capital economy, the demand on it must be humanitarian. Equality, dignity, autonomy. Are we to pursue a revolutionary anti capital existence, one that eliminates exploitation and oppression? We give up those demands in favor of assertion the autonomy of dignified existence as equals. How dignified is it to seek and be denied justice for oppression due to technicalities of the legal system and the untouchable nature of the enforcer? How dignified is it to vote for pandering representatives who work against? their constituents. How dignified is it to produce something for another person, a legal person with no body and no responsibility, and to keep a minuscule fraction of the wealth it creates? The imbalance speaks to the contempt such a system holds, for all of us. If capitalism is a religion, economics is the dogma and the economist is the clergy, proselytizing to us the virtues of a holy capital existence. With the same circular logic of religion, sin arises from the original sin of disobedience. Capital economics relies solely on itself, for explanation. Supply arises from demand, with all those predicated upon the natural balance of the two. Economics refuses to look seriously at itself, to acknowledge that calculating the actions of fictional humans in fictional markets creates a fallacy that would not pass for truth in any other discipline. We can, at the very least, study it from the outside and counter that the self-contained logic of standard economics does not explain human interaction. In fact, it doesn't understand humans at all. Like religion, economics insulates itself from critique. You have to be a vetted economist with an understanding of charts, graphs, equations, and thousands of definitions to have a say in this most pervasive aspect of our lives. To disagree is heresy, to critique is to lack comprehensive understanding, and to challenge is perverse, if not evil. We place significantly lower barriers to the public critique of other sciences and studies, anti-vaccination propaganda, climate change denial, social justice, yet guard the sanctity of capital economy with our lives. For those willing to parse out holistic understanding, the economist's message to the world coded in its dense language and academic nonsense is clear and simple. Fuck the poor. Homo sapiens is a unique species with the ability to self-contemplate, to see its existence as part of a whole, and to understand its journey through time. Are we to take capitalism at its word, we would believe that we have reached the peak of our evolutionary development. But the competition of the free market is no evolutionary achievement. Rather, it is a detour into the darkest recesses of the human psyche. We have been led to this reality by those who benefit from our obedience and the deluge of pro-market messaging. Homo economicus is a competitive creature with a win-at-all-cost attitude, but who feels the joy of victory when faced with the consequences of capital? Humans begging for money, humans starving, humans brutalized and tortured. Who feels a sense of accomplishment when our comfort is contrasted with our failures? I began this book in awe at the egalitarian approach my daughter and her friends took to playing a simple online game with no real rules but those imposed by other players. Who made the rules but the online collective? Who proposed the complement of barter to in-game currency allowing for the rise of a self-sustaining market? I end this book still in awe. If the nature of homo economicus is self-serving, it is learned, and it can be unlearned. I believe the nature of flesh-and-blood humans is nothing like the fiction of the economic human and the complete opposite of the corporate person. Everyone alive today has been born into a capital structure that denies humans a connection with their natural self because that structure would quickly wither if we were allowed the space and time to explore its alternatives, not to the detriment of humankind, but to the detriment of capital itself." The truths revealed by economics betray the narrative presented to us. Economics can explain away its shortcomings, but explanations offer no solutions, and economics has no solutions to its cruelest and deadliest problems. To achieve true equilibrium as preached by economists would be the collapse of markets. The incentives to win, accumulate, consolidate, and profit would disappear if equity for all was achieved. Equity is no goal of capitalism and therefore of no interest to the economist. We are more than individual competitors, but for capitalism to persist, we must believe in the sanctity of self-interest. It is a delusion that the individual dies outside the capital structure. Our individuality has been suppressed by allegiance to an unaccountable market. What to do with this disillusion and the paranoid fear of hurtling at warp speed into a cannibalizing system from which escape seems impossible? What kind of apocalyptic hellscape will emerge from the ruins of capitalism? Is anything salvageable? What I fear above all is the exhaustion of labor. There are only so many emerging economies to exploit, only so much inequality and villainization to be tolerated by workers increasingly subjected to the worst impulses of capital. The hellscape of capital's future eclipses anything that might replace it. Intermediate measures such as reform are functional only so long as the reformer's vigilance is maintained ad infinitum, something that has historically been impossible to achieve as evidenced by the regular churning of legislation in corporate favor that overpowers public victories. The manipulation of the 14th Amendment should perhaps serve as the most consequential example. We have two options, do something now or wait for the final threads of civility to rupture, at which point the inevitable outcome is violent revolt. That is the fear of the ruling classes because it has always been their fear. We have no responsibility to maintain a capital economy just as it has no responsibility to serve us. We can exploit the fear of the majority and we can assert our autonomy outside the confines of the market. Our current reality is the hellscape we fear. It's a bankrupt paradise of subordination and deference to the rich and powerful. That concludes chapter 12. Milton Friedman is an asshole. Next up is the 13th and final chapter appropriately titled Unfuck the poor. Short and sweet outro, just the way I like it.